Hey, uh, before Adam comes up and shares a word, uh, I'd like to give you an update on some things that are going on and, and, and offer you an invitation. I'm going to do it by answering three questions. Uh, uh, where are we? It's always good to know that. Uh, what are we doing? Also very good to know. And uh, what are we going to be asking of uh, you and, and one another in the next uh, 60 to 90 days? So uh, where are we? Well, we're continuing an almost 15-year journey uh, that started in the rec center, which, by the way, is where the Northwest Church is meeting again right now, which is kind of fun. Um, it was a time when we had very little interest in buildings, uh, and instead we funneled nearly 17% of what you gave into global missions. I don't know if you were part of the church back then, but it was a really, really fun time. We contributed to some orphanages that at different times had uh, up to 40 total children um, uh, off the streets that were at risk or orphaned. Um, I, I don't know this exactly. Adam, you probably know better than I do. I think we've graduated three from college already. And there's a, a handful that are, that are going through college right now. We've built seven churches in Kenya. Uh, we've sent missionaries into the field, both Jen Morgan and Sharon Kozar, who are uh, heroes. And we've supported, we can't even get a good count, something like 20-something teams and over like 200 people have gone on missions trips. Uh, so we went from the rec center. We, we routed through Kaufman High School for a year and a half or so in 08 and 09. And then we landed at Jerome, uh, at least in the Northwest, for a, like a nationally unprecedented 11-year cooperation with the education system, which just doesn't happen. Then we launched this site in 2011. Uh, we gave Hilliard a go in 2016 to 2018-ish. Uh, uh, and then we bought this building at the end of, uh, well, 2016 the same year we launched in Hilliard. Um, we have since converted, as many of you know, this facility uh, into a really a bona fide hub, as we've always dreamed of, uh, of kingdom cooperation and ministry. We're helping three other churches right now. Uh, you know about the Bloom Free Store. We've got the Westerville, um, Westerville, the, I think it, what is it, called? is it the Worship and Arts Center of Columbus? There we go, the WAC. We call it the WAC because I don't know what it means. Uh, I don't know how to say it, so we say WAC. Um, we've got a recording, a couple recording studios that we help um, whoever needs it, and then we've obviously hosted a ton of events here. Thousands of people have been here and used this facility. Um, We've broadcast, I don't know if you've ever done this math, we've, we've broadcast the gospel essentially to uh, about 50,000 people over the years through our Christmas event. We've discipled one another um, through groups in hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, we've dedicated hundreds and hundreds of children, possibly 500, and we've baptized close to 300 people, a large portion of which are uh, adults that we, you know, we just didn't anticipate. And we continue to pray through our blessed 10 lists for thousands of friends, families, teammates that still haven't found their way back to God. And, of course, we've navigated an historic first ever global pandemic, um, unprecedented suffering, really, at least in our lifetime, right? I, I don't believe there's been more suffering um, in, a, in a consolidated time in my life anyway. That, and it accelerated all sorts of new ways of functioning, whether it's business or entertainment, shopping, education, church is included. But it also disrupted all of those same segments in ways that it'll take years to recover from. People are going to do studies of this year and a half, 10, 20 years from now, and begin to understand the, the, the impact of it. Um, the most socially and economically vulnerable are going to pay the higher price and are paying the higher price. And the isolation that came, as, came about through the pandemic has brought despair to millions of people. More than any time in memory, 
Uh, the world is grappling for truth. It's grappling for hope, uh, belonging, worth, and failing to find it through an endless and ineffective array of efforts uh, like financial security, reconciliation and equality initiatives, vaccination policies, wokeism, gender, political, and cause idolatry, religious fanaticism, um, billion-dollar fantasy-based industries of escapism through virtual gaming, sex, and relationships. What's shocking is that for the better part of two centuries, beginning in the late 1700s, Western cultures have been animated by a powerful hope that history was progressive, that the human race was moving inevitably toward creating a world of greater and greater safety, prosperity, and freedom. Popular figures wrote and taught and predicted that human reason, ingenuity, science, once freed from, you know, uh, superstitions of the past would inevitably bring a better future. And although the final four decades of those two centuries were deeply anxiety-provoking as the world passed through two world wars, a pandemic, the Great Depression, and a nuclear-armed Cold War, the end of that Cold War in 98 revived the optimism and belief in human progress. But psychologists and philosophers and social scientists and the like struggle to explain the monumental collapse of hope over the last 30 years, particularly when they fail to recognize this. The greatest threat to our hope for a better world is not human effort or natural environmental change, but the various evils that continually spring from the human heart. And here we are, here we are, part of God's church at a very significant crossroads, which could be the establishment of the future, not only for Vista, but alongside the church at large. This is it, to continue our lives together on a mission of hope to all those God would have us reach for Jesus' sake. So what are we facing right now? What are we doing? <clears throat> well, it feels like God has pruned us and strengthened us in many ways through the pandemic, only to discover 70% of our congregation is sort of handcuffed in the Northwest, in a manner of speaking, uncertain of where to gather and, and to physically exist in their community in a way that's meaningful to that community. And we've got an opportunity together as a church to put another stake in the ground, to establish another beachhead like this one, to create another physical intersection for closer partnerships, kingdom work, and a space where non-believers and believers can overlap, to lower an anchor, if you will, and secure the Northwest Vista community and lean into our future and the future of God's church. That's where we're at. So what am I asking you? What are we asking one another to do? Here's the deal. We've got an opportunity. We've been talking about this to acquire a facility that provides a wonderful place to gather in a Northwest area, provide a platform and a model for kingdom partnering, ministry cooperation, and a foundation for the future church. In really, really practical terms, it's a $4 million, 40,000 square foot project 
of the purchase of a facility on Franz Road. And it's going to be a stretch. It is going to be a stretch to acquire it. Steve Lindsay, the owner of that part of Lindsay Honda, is rightly holding to his current offer, generous as it is, holding there until the church expresses its will. That's a very important part of the progress. Even if we could go find the money and get Steve and the Lindsay family to give us the greatest deal in the world, it wouldn't be right if the church didn't speak through its own faith and its own giving first. And that's where we're headed. If everything comes together the way it will need to, then we'll do it. If it doesn't, we'll take it from God as though he has a different plan for us, which he certainly would. So no matter how it all turns out, whatever we discover God's plan to be for us, ultimately, here's what I'm asking you to do. Get ready for a relatively short but intense season of vulnerability, of trust in God of courageous character development and intentional thought. This is what I mean by that. I'm inviting you, more than anything else, into faith work, uh, heart work, and head work that leads not just to a location change, but life change. Here's what I mean. Faith and heart and head. Faith. Where God intends his people to go, don't ever forget this, wherever God intends his people to go. We don't always know where that is, but we know this. It always requires faith from his people. Whatever and wherever God leads us to do, to give, or to go will require faith. Not not just faith like I believe God exists or that he can do big things, but a faith that puts each of us into a space of dependence. It's a vulnerable place that you wouldn't normally go. Faith without works is dead, James tells us. We're going to have to exercise faith, and that's not easy. It's a vulnerable space. A heart is another thing we know for sure. Where What God intends for his people, ultimately, no matter where he leads them, from Egypt to the promised land or from one facility to two, Ultimately, he's looking to bring us to a place of deeper and stronger character. And that always and first requires an exposure of our heart. Here's, here's, the way, here's one way to illustrate that. Here's the reason, in my opinion, that pastors don't talk about money. Because it exposes them. It exposes how well or how poorly discipleship has happened in our church, in our congregation. And it exposes how willing we are to acknowledge our own insufficiencies of heart. It's too exposing. As soon as we start talking about money, we all find out how attached we are to it and the comfort and the power it provides. And the first sign of attachment in this context is how quickly quickly we question the asker. (laughs) <laughs> that's the reason pastors don't ask for money because the first question is going to be, hey, who are you to say that? Well, what's, about, what's up with you? Well, why are you doing that? Are you sure you're going to know what you're doing? Are you know what you're doing? You do, suddenly you get all these questions. We get questioned on our motives. We get questioned on our confidence our, and our competence. What's going to be done with the money? Instead of vulnerably, humbly going to God with open hands and asking for directions, we tend to react by questioning and resisting or even discrediting the ask. It's a heart, it's a heart issue. But the questions and the criticisms are legitimate. 
They're, they're necessary. They're not wrong. Leaders and pastors, me included, have to be willing to be questioned. Our strategies critiqued and criticized without being defensive because we're flawed too. Our motives might be wrong and our ideas and strategies and plans in need of refinement, even corrected. Our pride must be checked at the door. <laughs> the reason we don't talk about money is because all of our hearts are to some degree attached to what we have and fearful to give it up. We must be willing to undergo heart surgery. Big steps for God require heart surgery for everyone. And that might be the toughest part. And then the head. To follow God requires, yes, active faith, humble hearts, and intentional time and energy given to thought. It requires your brain. Because although what we do together will be one big thing, it's built on very particular individual steps and actions and commitments that are yours and yours alone. Whether you contribute in the end a half dollar or a half million dollars, it'll be your unique, thoughtfully calculated, even creative step of faith. So let me wrap it this way. We're diving into something far more important and profound than a building. I would love to get that building for so many different reasons. It's going to take all of us to do it. But it's really the journey that God is inviting us into. He's inviting into a space where our character is changed and our very lives are deepened. The building is gravy. That's what's happening. I'm inviting you to be mashed potatoes. <laughs> I just thought of that just now. I'm impressed by that. I just thought of that. <laughs> Getting all mashed up by God and the building is gravy. Um, the invitation is an invitation to a way of living and giving that is radically different than the world's way. I'm, in, I'm inviting you, as always, into something that Jesus has invited us all into, a living and a giving that is different, a Christ-following way that rejects the fears and the false hopes of this world and instead rests in the only real hope, eternal hope, Hope found exclusively in the love and mercy of God, established through Jesus. It is a way that leads to greater hope in each of us that ultimately offers and invites the hopeless to the same. We've been camping on this verse in Romans chapter 5. It says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So I, your board of directors and elders, leaders, staff, and even one another at this time are only asking one thing in particular of you this week. We'll get into more details next week, but we're asking you to return next week having considered deeply whether or not you're ready for this, to let your heart be tested, uh, let your actions be full of faith, and that your mind be ready to think. Here's what the next few weeks look like. We'll come back uh, next week and, 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 and get going, ready with faith and heart and brain. Um, we'll do a parking lot service uh, all together, I think. We're just inviting everybody to the parking lot over there to Franz Road. We're just going to have a, an outdoor service, uh, probably fairly brief, and we'll peek into the windows. And then October 10th, 
Um, we're going to have a digital service. It won't be in person. And it'll be like a, a, a tour of that building and, and some words to go along with it, I'm sure. Okay, Adam, about ready? Come on up here. Uh, this is nothing other than an invitation for you to enter a rather intense season of personal development, deeper experience of the presence of God. There's no other way to end up where God wants us than uh, first jumping into this journey. So there you go. There's your invitation. Here's Adam. I asked him to talk a little bit about hope. And then um, I talked a lot about it myself. That's not really fair. You did good, though. <laughs> I feel like there's nothing, nothing left for me to say. I can't wait to hear you. <laughs> because you always say that. And then uh, you say great things. So... I mean, I, I prepared independently of knowing what Mike was going to say, and then we basically came up with the same thing. So <laughs> I don't know what to say. It was like a Jesus thing, right? That's probably why we hang out so much together. I, I do. Think I do enjoy yeah. I don't even want to leave, apparently. Yeah, you hang out. <laughs> Let's talk. This is what he and I do on a weekly basis. We just talk about what the message is, and we think if anybody else listens, that's great, but right. we enjoy digging into yeah, stuff. All right, right, I'll get out of the way. That's right. So there's this... Um, there's this guy who said one time, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. I think you probably know this guy. Uh, he said these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. He did, he did go on to say that the greatest of these is love. But I think it's right and good for us to talk about hope too. Because I think there's actually quite a bit of disagreement in our world as to where hope might be found. I think there is uh, a discussion maybe that needs to be had about where there might be true hope. Because, man, have we dashed our hopes against the rocks a few times in human history. We've, we've reconstructed them just to see them fall flat again. Uh, actually, historically, you can look at times in human history where there was great hope. Uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of 1900, actually, <clears throat> the turn of the 20th century. There was a World's Fair in Paris. It's not the one with the Eiffel Tower. That was 11 years before. But there was this World's Fair in Paris in 1900. And if you read the, the newspaper articles, if you look back through what they had to say about what was coming next, they were chock full of hope. They thought, with our human ingenuity, with engineering, with new political systems, economic ideas, with, with, uh, with our psychology, all these things, we can solve the problems that we've got. Uh, the, the Parisians were, were, uh, were walking down the sidewalk and, and, and looking in the windows of the World's Fair to see uh, buildings lit with electricity and, and, and people enjoying uh, a casual stroll along escalators. And they thought, what, what can't we accomplish we can move without moving. <laughs> what can't we accomplish? There's so much to hope in. And it wasn't too much later that those hopeful people started tearing each other apart. Uh, maybe in the name of their hope, they tried to tear down other people's hopes. And, and, and for a while they thought, okay, we, we got it wrong. We, we can rebuild this again. Let's just try this with the Treaty of Versailles. That, that will, the World War I, that's just the war to end all wars. We could fix it. Right? We can make the world safe for democracy. We can put a, a treaty in place that's just going to fix it. And it was really not much later <laughs> that we were at it again. And what I want you to understand about this is once we got to the second of, the end of these world wars, where we got to the, this uh, place where, where millions had died of a pandemic, and they, it wasn't just that they were brokenhearted. They were confused. 
You need to understand that when we got to the end of World War II, though many people were breathing a sigh of relief, a lot of the world was simply confused. If you, if you look at the, at, at the psychologists who 50 years before, 45 years before, have been announcing that their understanding of the human uh, brain and, and, and person was going to help them solve issues, and the engineering uh, people who thought we, we were going to engineer utopia, and instead we are now just able to destroy each other more easily. And, and all these people, they were just, they were confused. It's not just that they were brokenhearted, they were confused. And into this din of confusion came a piece of literature. I think you've heard of this one, too. Um, this one's called The Lord of the Flies. You know that one? Maybe you were forced to read it when you were a sophomore in high school, or maybe you were like me and you were forced to pretend like you read it when you were a sophomore in high school. Possibly. It's possible. I read it since. I got, I got, I got it together later in life. But I read it eventually, and I realized he had a lot to say this William Golding. The story is that World War II is happening, and of course, World War II put children in great danger, right, and the British Isles in particular, but of course, all across the continent, that's a big part of the story. So the story of the Lord of the Rings is that we were trying to take them away from the trouble and send them, I think it was going to Canada, and then they would be safe there. That was the idea, that that if we could get them away from the evil that was taking place on the continent, we could get them to someplace that was safe, where hope could be born again, made anew. Uh, you may know that the story ends with them sort of marooned on an island. And these innocent children, this, uh, this, this blank slate of, of, of innocence, these children were left to fend for themselves, and they had to sort of build up a society from, from scratch. And maybe you know the story well enough to know that it went sideways, really quickly. And, and all the hopes that they had for building a, a functional society were, were, were false hopes. And maybe you remember that while they were tearing each other apart, actually, they, they were finally rescued. They had one last hope to be rescued. And maybe you remember who it is that rescued them. In the Lord of the Rings, they're rescued by this cruiser. I said Lord of the Rings, and that's incorrect. It's Lord of the Flies. Yes, I was thinking about using a Lord of the Rings analogy, but I, I switched. Okay, Lord of the Flies, I'm so sorry. Lord of the Flies, this cruiser comes along to, to save them. Um, it's a military cruiser, and they're in the middle of actually a, an exercise or, or a mission. And the children are saved. But William Golding makes this point. He says, are they really saved? Is, is it really possible for these people, this, this, this rescue, to be bringing them to safety? Or are they just taking them out of the frying pan and into the fire? Because he says, what has happened here is it's in this moment, in this manhunt, they've, they've paused for a moment what they are doing so that they can rescue these children. But they're just going to go right back to what they're doing. You might, you might say it this way, that William Golding, when he wrote Lord of the Flies, was saying two things. He was saying, first, there is no distinction. There's no distinction. You see, what had been happening in the aftermath of World War II is people were trying to say, I think that probably evil is over there somewhere. It's on the other side of, maybe a little later, the Berlin Wall. Or it's on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I think it's over there somewhere. 
we might be able to say, we're safe on this side of the Atlantic. We have hope because the trouble is really it's over there. But actually, what he was saying was, no, there is no distinction. In fact, in this way, he's echoing the thoughts of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who himself had been imprisoned in the Gulag Archipelago, who himself had been, uh, been under the thumb of the Soviet Union, where his hopes had been pressed to the ground by the Soviets. And he himself, Solzhenitsyn, had said, there is no distinction. Evil is not on the other side of the political system. It's not on the other side of the wall. It runs right down the middle of you and me. There is no distinction. Guess who else said that? Paul said that. There is no distinction. It's in Romans chapter 3, right? There is no distinction. All have fallen short is what it says. The second thing that Golding is saying in his book, Lord of the Flies, is the dead can't raise the dead. We can, we can reconstruct our hopes as often as we like, but the dead can't raise the dead. That's what he's saying when he's talking about the, the children being rescued. He's saying, well, they were in the frying pan, but they're just being rescued to the fire. They're just being brought into the trouble again. There's, there's no distinction in the dead can't raise the dead. Actually, Paul said that too. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, he gives this dizzying discourse. He says, where am I going to turn? I can't do the things I want to do. All the things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. And he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He said, these two things that Golding says are actually Pauline. There is no distinction, and the dead can't raise the dead. And here's the news we have to face up to. The news we have to be honest about with ourselves. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There's no way for us, the dead, to raise the dead. We're going to need something outside of death to come along and conquer it if we're going to have some hope. If we're going to have some hope. You see, all these good ideas we entered the 20th century with were not, they weren't really incorrect so much as they couldn't go far enough. They couldn't hope to go far enough. They couldn't dig deep enough. Do you know what I mean? All of them were, were, were good faith efforts, I think, in many cases. But they, they couldn't hope to dig deep enough. Maybe another piece of literature can explain what I mean. You've heard of Eustace Scrub? Maybe. From the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This, uh, this character, the cousin of the Pevensies, he's beastly. Mostly on the inside. But eventually, this beastly nature of Eustace Scrub makes an appearance on the outside. He turns into a dragon because he had put his hopes in this certain treasure. He had put his hopes somewhere that they didn't belong. He had hoped that he could make a distinction between himself and everyone else. Everyone else was a, a lesser human being than he. And when he finally recognized that he was a dragon in this voyage of the Dawn Treader, he wanted to scrape away the scales. He wanted desperately to dig deep enough to reveal the boy again. He wanted to be brought back to life, but he couldn't dig deep enough. In the story, this dragon is found weeping on the beach because he can't dig deep enough to rescue the boy within. So here comes Aslan. You know Aslan. He's the Christ figure in this Chronicles of Narnia story. And it's only Aslan that can dig deep enough. 
It's, it's only Aslan who could dig past where the false hopes failed and get deeper still to reveal the boy within, to rescue us from this body of death, like Paul said in Romans 7. Because Paul said something else in Romans 6. Paul said, listen, sin used to have power over you. Sin used to have dominion is the word used. But he says, but not anymore. That's actually something we need to maybe pause and think about for a second. He talked about sin as a noun and not as a verb. Right? He didn't say, we, were, we made these mistakes, so when we stop making those mistakes, everything will be good again. Let's build an Eiffel Tower and remind ourselves how great we are. He said, no, 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 sin's a noun. It has a power over you. It has a power over you, and you have to recognize because you can't raise yourself to life. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It is Jesus Christ. It, it, it's him who can overcome the power of sin and has done it. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. He's talking about how Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was an old man. He actually also says Sarah's womb was as good as dead. It wasn't producing life. And he says, but God brings dead things to life. In Romans 4, chapter, Romans chapter 4, 17. He says, God speaks things that weren't existing into existence. It's the God who gave us these ten sayings, let there be, in Genesis chapter 1, who brought life out of nothing. The same God who gave us ten sayings in Exodus chapter 20, who said, you were once dead, trapped in slavery in Egypt. I brought you out of out of Egypt, I brought you out of slavery with my voice. I've brought you to life. Here's what life looks like. That's what the Ten Commandments were. They were saying, it's the same God who speaks and he brings us to life. You see, there is no distinction. Romans 3 says there is no distinction. All have sinned. You know what there is also no distinction in? That God has freely justified you. There is no distinction. And there has to be no distinction because guess what? When there's a distinction, that's where we start to place our hopes. We go, here's my distinction. My ACT score is my distinction. I'm going to place my hope there. Here's my distinction, uh, my, my, my winsome smile. All right, here's my distinction, my ability to turn a phrase. Maybe we would, if we had distinctions that we could turn to, we would, we, we would create hopes out of them, false hopes. There has to be no distinction so that we can find out that there's only one true hope. There is no distinction. All have fallen short and all have been freely justified. It's this Jesus who speaks and brings dead things to life, who sees no distinction between all of us who are lost and gone astray. It's he who gives us hope. Like Romans chapter 5 says. Romans chapter 5 says, we boast in the hope of Jesus. And even in sufferings, because they produce perseverance and character and hope. What is that process other than being pruned of our false hopes till we find out what remains? There's only three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. And this hope is not just a future hope. I want to tell you that when he breathes life into us, that when life begets life, when he brings us dead things to life, it is for freedom that he does it. It is for, for life that he does it. 
I want you to think about how the, the future hope that we have is now read into the, the present, how it changes actually everything. Paul said so. He said that this hope that doesn't disappoint, it changes everything. Not just my future, but my present. It, it, it's this, this hope that brings faith out of me. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says, and that is why I'm obeying it's, it's, the, it's the obedience that faith produces in me. It is that God spoke me into life. Where there was actual hope, he brought me to life. And now I'm living, I'm standing in grace, is how he says it in Romans. I'm standing in grace. My obedience was brought forth out of me by the King of Kings. He says it slightly differently in Ephesians. I wonder if you'd be willing to, to look at it and read just a slightly extended passage. Ephesians chapter 2. It's the same story we've been telling. It's just that it's a little bit more um, drawn out. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 about what happens when God brings us to life. This is the beginning of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. And dead people can't bring dead people to life. You were dead in your transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. They had this power over you. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of our thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Whatever hopes we constructed for ourselves, they were destined to be false hopes. But because of his great love for us, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, because life begets life, because his voice has always been calling dead things to life, because he's rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That is to say, there is no distinction. Don't turn to those distinctions. Those are false hopes. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, not by distinctions. There is no distinction. For we are God's handiwork. The word is we are his poem, poema. We are his handy. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Uh, brought to life. Uh, the, uh, elsewhere in Ephesians it says that the, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now living in us. He's bringing dead things to life. And so, yes, our future hope has everything to do with the present. I know it has. Because I've read the receipts. What is studying history other than reading the receipts? of those who had actually found where hope is truly rooted. There's only one person who could justifiably say that they're the light of the world. It's this Jesus character. He said, I am the light of the world. And guess what he is? We could go ad nauseum into the details about how he changed everything. It's not just theory. It's not one more reconstructed set of hopes. It's historically demonstrable that he brought these people to life, that he breathed life into them. 
whether it's women's rights or, or the end of slavery in the ancient world or the end of the gratuitous violence of the Colosseum or the, 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 the shifting of the political sensibilities, wherever you want to look, what you are seeing is Jesus having brought dead things to life. Wherever you want to look, you are seeing people who used to be under the power of sin now breathing the fresh air of the future because the Spirit of God is breathing it into them. Yes, we look around us, we see that it's a mess. We see that there's a way things are. And we know that in Christ Jesus, there's a way things will be. We know that there is a, th- a way that things will be. We sang about it this morning. But the truth is, we also say, now there's a way that things can be. Right here, right now, because life begets life, and this one spoke life into me. It's the reason that Paul's not ashamed. Because he knows that this hope won't put him to shame. He actually starts there in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He has no reason to be ashamed. This hope won't fail him. This hope has changed everything. This hope was brought out of him. Not not constructed by him, but, but planted in him. This hope is... Evidence that life begets life. This obedience we see in Paul is proof. There's only one place to put our hopes. Let's turn there. Lord, we confess all these false hopes. We confess, uh, we construct false hopes for ourselves and we do battle against other people's hopes with them. We, we, we seek to make distinction between ourselves and others. But we know that in you, in your love, there is no distinction. That the miracle of the diversity of the early church was no accident. There is no distinction between Greek or Jew, male or female. Not in you, not in your love. We turn towards your hope because it is so beautiful and good and it has brought us to life. We want to join you in walking in those footsteps, in those life-giving footsteps. Uh, Lord, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.